0: Well, welcome, everybody, to another edition of The Endgame. Joining me, as always, because it would be no good without him, frankly, is my pal Bill Fleckenstein.
1: Bill, hi, mate. How you doing, mate? Um, it's nice to be back in the podcast business, especially given the timeliness, perhaps, of uh, uh, our guests that we're going to have on today.
0: Yeah, as, as we sit and record this on, uh, what day is it? There's a day after Labor Day, Tuesday, September the 8th, I think. Um, markets have been wobbly for the last few days. We've seen all the tech stocks starting to succumb to that those psychological meltdowns that you get at, at the top. So our guest today is Edward Chancellor, who's written one of the best chronicles of manias, panics, and all kinds of things uh, crash-related of of any era, and that is Devil Take the Hindmost, which um, chronicles just about every major crash between the 1600s to 2000, and if you haven't read it yet, uh, I can't recommend the book highly enough. It's something Bill and I both kind of compared notes with our tattered copies of the book lying around our offices today, and you know, Bill, um, you and I, I think we were both at the same conference where we saw Ed speak. It's fascinating to listen to him uh, mm-hmm. and his kind of perspective on this stuff is, is extraordinary. I totally agree. So let's get going. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. This is, this is something Bill and I have been looking forward to for quite some time now.
2: <laughs> nice to be here. Yeah.
0: It's um, as, as we've kind of approached this day, it's, it's funny how the world seems to be uh, cooperating with us for once and, 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 putting kind of things in front of us that jive so well with the conversation that we'd love to have with you about manias and, and panics and, and how kind of euphoric episodes come to an end. But I think before we get into that, if if, if I can, because there will be people out there who, who haven't perhaps read Devil Take the Hindmost, and hopefully we'll all be rushing out to buy a copy after this. Um, but perhaps if you could just tell people how your kind of fascination with that came about, and what was what was it that led you to producing this phenomenal piece of work?
2: Um, so I actually went into the the city of London in the early 1990s, having done a postgraduate degree in history, working for actually in corporate finance rather than on the investment side. And I, you know, one one heard talk of railway manias and tulip bubbles and this and that, and I, I just, you know, as one does when one works on Wall Street or in the city, I didn't really know anything about them. Couldn't find anything, any sort of up-to-date account that I thought was uh, particularly accessible. There was, of course, uh, Charles Kindleberger's Manias, Panics and Crashes, but, you know, I, d- I didn't have any issues with, with Kindleberg. I just didn't, it was more of a sort of taxonomy rather than a narrative account, and I thought it'd be interesting to work on more of a narrative account of, of, of the speculative manias. So, so that's how I sort of got into it. And then, as it so happened, as I was writing the book, from the sort of mid nineteen nineties onwards, it then turned. <laughs> it, it just so happened it was this um, epic speculative bubble game in um, in the in, in in internet stocks, and and I, and that was quite useful to me because I I found myself sort of writing about the railway mania of the eighteen forties and finding that sort of language and expectations of the internet were quite similar to the railway mania of the 1840s. So I I found very strong sort of, yeah, I I found very strong historical parallels, um, as as one still does. And in that sense, I was influenced greatly by Bill and my mutual friend, Jim Grant, who who sort of looks at what's going on in the current world uh, with one eye uh, on, on the past. So that that's in short what, what what took me into this particular field.
1: Well, uh, one question that um, I'm sort of curious about is when you when you got done writing it, and then you saw, I mean, I think it, you published it. Wasn't it is was it '99 when it came out? Uh, I yeah. can't.
2: I, June, I think June '99. Yeah, summer of '99. I,
1: I, I remember reading it because. At the time, I was running a short-only fund, and I felt like we were in a bubble. And I had read all the other books, you know, some and you know, even some of the ones you've quoted, trying to get a handle on how this has happened historically. I'd always had a fascination with why did manias end. After doing that, I kind of came up with my own theory about about why it ended. But I thought that rather than lead the witness, I would ask you given the fact you'd study them if you have a strong opinion about what causes them to end um you know is there any anyway so what's yeah. your feeling on on, on that phenomenon well, I, why, I, why I do they think, end
2: i mean you could it's like there are sort of big manias and small manias right <laughs> like right, a small, right a small mania let's say, is, is a bit like a pyramid scheme or a virus. <laughs> it could just run out of steam <laughs>
1: right. when right.
2: it's sort of infected as many people as it's going to infect. Um, so, I mean, look, sort of go back, you know, two or three years ago to the Bitcoin bubble, uh, you know, was, was cresting in, in, I can't remember, sort of went December 2017, 2017, is that correct? Uh, within within six months, it was down by two thirds. Uh, not sure if anything particularly burst that Bitcoin bubble. It's just that you know the the world had run out of idiots to buy Bitcoin. But the bigger bubbles, you know, the great stock market bubbles or the great real estate bubbles, I think they re- they tend to be um, burst by something that interrupts the flow of liquidity. And the most common cause, to my mind is tighter money, is, is a restriction on, on the supply of credit. I mean, we, we see that, you know, I remember being interviewed in 99 on um, CNBC and, and, you know, in the summer 99, and they said, you know, what could end this bubble? And I said, well, look, you know, the Fed is hiking rates. <laughs> that is what normally... And if you then think that what actually sort of stopped the internet bubble really uh, in the spring of the next year was actually the halt and the flow of of, high, of junk bonds into, you know, that were financing the, the sort of the alt-net telecoms carriers in, in, in the States and, and in the UK. It was just, you know, money was quite tight. US yield, treasury yield, 10-year yields were what, over 6% at the time. And I still think it's mainly tight money, you know, rings the final bell I don't know if you, tell me if you have some some other view.
1: Um, I, I have a, a kind of a combo uh, view. Um, part of it is conditions change. Uh, you know, the the, the money getting, uh, or at least reducing liquidity or raising rates was, that happened in 89 in Tokyo. That happened in both 00 here and 08. But, but I have a slightly different viewpoint of it having sat with a portfolio betting on the fall or, you know, the unwinding while these things were happening. And my observation and and was sort of corroborated in reading history was that negative events come along, they don't upend it. And the fact that they don't kind of emboldens people, even as maybe the leadership narrows. And then what finally ends it is simply nothing. And my favorite, uh, Uh, A great quote from your book on that subject was when um, Winston Churchill visited the Stock Exchange on either the uh, the, Black Thursday, 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 I believe. And Ed, you write, the panic that unfolded before his eyes had no palpable cause. And so that's sort of my belief is that, yes, conditions change, but it isn't the changing of conditions. that starts to maybe winnow the field a little bit, but then something happens and psychology changes. You know, the the continuity of bullish thought gets
2: disrupted somehow. Bill, I mean, to go back to 1929, I don't don't want to contradict myself. (laughs) Um, (laughs) After 20 years, perhaps I do want to contradict myself. So this is the way I see it. And, And I think probably in Devil Take the High most, I underplayed it or hardly even mentioned it is that the second half of 1920 saw enormous capital flows, as you're probably aware, from the U.S. into particularly into Central Europe and and, and Germany. And it was, interestingly, it was the tightening of, um, of, of U.S., hiking of U.S. interest rates in 1928 after the retirement and death of the president of the New York Fed, Benjamin Strong, after he died the sort of shift of the fed was towards restraining speculation so they jacked up domestic uh rates what that did is it, it pushed um core money rates uh um, right up to very high levels i i think you know 15% or something like, yeah, yeah. yeah. what that happened what happened then is actually money was then sucked out of central europe um and people you know the the Germans instead of M- American money flowing to, um, you know, to to Central Europe, the money started flowing back. So I I think I, you know, I, I think that I wouldn't you know I mean in fact actually, I have been <laughs> I have been sort of rewriting this <laughs> this uh, whole period for because I'm I'm now working on a on a on a history of interest rates. I'm sort of looking at that whole period again. Through the prism of, of interest rates, and okay. and I and I do think yes, I would. I'd say that it was tighter money that was the that was the the death knell of, of the of the twenty nine bubble.
1: So, how, would it, would it be fair to arrive at, at this sort of a conclusion that a tightening of money in some way, shape, or form? Because remember, March of two thousand was. They'd withdrawn the Y2K liquidity injection, which at the time was a big number. Now it's a small number in comparison. But the the, the tightening of liquidity is a necessary precondition, but not a sufficient cause all by itself. Something has to happen because you can find these periods of tightening and they go on for quite a while and then somehow it just goes. So maybe that sets the precondition and then you still have to get psychology to snap.
2: Sure. I mean, I think there are, you know, there's an element, you know, of feedback loops and and um, in in markets and, and therefore the you know what one might identify at the time as the cause is not really a cause. It's just eventually, you know, it's it's your sort of wily coyote who's got over the cliff and yeah. suddenly <laughs> realizing he's over the cliff. I mean, I think to go back to the current day, I think this is something. What we're seeing now is slightly different. I mean, you, you, as you've been aware, you look at the last, you know, seven or eight years. Each time the Fed has sort of reduced its accommodation. Yes. yes. So starting with the taper tantrum in the summer of 2013, and then I'm thinking I might be missing some things, but then the next year, I think you've got your bond market flash crash. And then in the summer of 2015, You've got, you know, sort of ETF crashes and so forth, which are related to the China devaluation, which I think was related to the fact that the Fed was coming off its um, zero interest rate policy and flagged it was coming off the next year. Then I'm fast forwarding to 2018, which was Mm -hmm. a rough year. Um, And I think 2018, again, was this, you know, the Fed at that time said it was going on, um, it was continuing to tighten. Now, I mean, admittedly, it didn't get very high by historic (laughs) standards. Uh, And it just shows you that, you know, 2%, the world falls to pieces now. It's no longer 6% or 15%. So I, I, I think that's one side of the coin. I think the other thing now is that the central bank's are just far more accommodative of markets than has ever been the time yeah. in the history. I mean, as someone pointed out, with this, um, the coronavirus panic of March, I don't remember what date it was, sort of tw- around the 20th, I can't remember. Yeah, idea, March. Idea, yeah. The, yeah 10, that, that week, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Anyhow, so that, but it was interesting is the market cracked. And I think... I'm right saying is that the Fed went in with very heavy support of the markets, where the markets were only 10%, let's say the S&P yeah. was only off 10% off its peak. Now, as you all know, the peak <laughs> was one of the highest market levels right. in history. I mean, it was higher than 1929. So it's sort of as if the Fed were, were suddenly opening the gushers in September 1929, and in which case you weren't really going to get your October uh, twenty nine. Right. And I think that I think now it's not really just what keeps the market going is actually continuous accommodation. Mm-hmm. It may, may not even be, I mean, in the past it was tightening that was required, and now it may simply be the absence of accommodation that would actually in itself. But, I mean, one can't be certain, because this really is quite unprecedented, what we've been I mean, it's sort of interesting from the, you know, those of us who are sort of interested in finance, but, I mean, it's also quite scary, because one's right. never seen, it's, it's just far more extreme than, than anything one's ever seen.
0: Let me ask you. You touched on something there that I was going to ask you anyway, and that is um, just the degree of sensitivity that the world now has. Because, as you say, when you go back to twenty nine, and you look at where rates reached before the wheels kind of fell off the whole thing, it was it was much much higher than than now. As you said, core rates were fifteen percent. I think interest rates were six seven percent before that happened. Obviously, we were on a gold standard, and that that changes the dynamic somewhat, but. I think to your point uh, that you made a couple of seconds ago, the sensitivity to rising rates at this point is so much heightened now that we've seen we, we got to one percent in the last time there one and a quarter percent whatever it was one and a half somewhere around there and things started to get very very shaky. In this era of, as you put it, you know, flat out accommodation, is there any room for them to ever raise rates again? Because right now it feels as though if they even raise them a tiny little bit. This is so fragile now that it can't withstand that.
2: Yeah, so we, so I've been, you know, I've been working on this whole question of rates for, you know, for the best part of the last <laughs> decade, and uh, in presentations you know, five years ago, I just used to, you know, show the Fed funds rate peaking at different peaks and just drew a sort of <laughs> a
0: yeah, line. Forty-five. <laughs> <line, yeah. laughs>
2: I don't you know. I did I mean, this is sort of stockbroker stuff, and which I, well, you know, one doesn't normally uh, hold by, but I just said. It, if if this continues, we will be peaking at 2.25, which is exactly where it got to. So in that sense, it is following this trend. And I don't think that interest rates can rise. And there's a term that uh, Jim Grant uses and uh, Claudio Borio of, of the Bank of International Settlements use, which is low rates beget low rates. Mm-hmm. And they, the low rates beget low rates in a number of different ways, um, and that that's sort of part of the thrust of this book I'm working on, which is to try and understand the world we live in today through the prism of the interest rates. Anyhow, I mean, so one obvious way is 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 just the huge amount of debt out there, <laughs> and that's you know true of whether it's you know household, corporate, or or government debt. Is that the the more debt there is out there, then uh, you know, one of the things that Boreo and the Bank of International Settlements find is that, is that the economy's debt-service ratio tends to be rather stable. So everything else being equal, the more debt you have, the lower interest rates required in order to mm-hmm. validate the debt. And so we call that, if you know, you probably know that phrase, you know, the debt super cycle. Yeah. Just, you know, from one cycle to another, debt keeps on rising and interest rates keep on falling. And because in a capitalist society you need to sort of create credit in order to generate purchasing power, you need you know, they, they, you carry on you this this they, they you you can bet that the authorities will push the um the debts supercycle as far as it will go um and which is why in some countries it takes you down into negative rates the the other thing is is that the corollary of the debt super cycle is an asset price super bubble <laughs> and what's interesting is that each bubble uh, is bigger than the bubble that you yeah,
0: necessarily i guess
2: uh, uh, where it's not necessarily i mean this is an, a relatively new phenomenon i mean the data that i like to cite is commonly cited is, is you need just take the sort of what used to be called the fed flow of funds um you know household wealth, net household wealth, or gross, but it doesn't really matter. What you see is that, I'm talking slightly off the top of my head, but, but the, that relative to its historic mean, household wealth will probably be, I don't know, so I'm saying something like 15 to $20 trillion above its historical mean, or roughly two-thirds of GDP. So that is a lot of wealth. And where things are at the moment, I take it that despite, and this is <laughs> despite COVID 19 and the collapse of the global economy, the bubble is probably higher today. We are mm-hmm. richer at a time when, you know, frankly, we've almost never been poorer. I mean, it's a, it's a right. ho- horribly paradoxical thing. But it, it just in terms of financial wealth, or, and plus, you've thrown your sort of real estate assets too. Um, and that, I think, requires lower and lower interest rates in order to push this wealth bubble up. Now, this wealth bubble is not just, you know, uh, in order to make, you know, Steve Schwartzman of uh, Blackstone, state richer. It's, um, it, it's actually sort of essential for these economies, like, the you know, the British and American economy, which have been under-saving for years, yeah. that we live, our savings are entirely... Uh, financial asset savings with nothing really backing it up I mean I was thinking you know this summer I've had a swimming pool built and doing up a barn it's entirely just from selling some assets that you know some shares that uh, I bought you know three years ago I mean I just took the profits on some shares and built and turned that into something in you know to do up my house there was no actual act of um of saving <laughs> as might <my laughs> traditionally name. Now now the thing is that I'm and I think mean, you know, I'm one of the prudent ones. <laughs> For the rest of the world, of the rest of the Anglo Saxon world, where you know, very, very little by way of pension savings and so forth. And and the the validation of the pensions is very much dependent on interest rates going lower, particularly in in Britain, as you know that Basically, you know, a uh, you know, lot of middle-class people rely on their houses as their as their pensions, yes. and that requires the house prices going up again. British house prices at you know at an all-time record high, despite COVID. Yes. So that's another reason uh, why you can't raise interest rates. And then you've got this sort of financial fragility, sort of chasing yield and so on and so forth. High, you know, the corporate and high yield stuff and you know, and you saw that sort of beginning to blow in March. Needless to say, the Fed came in, <laughs> put a, put an end to that. Yeah. Um, but you have the financial fragility, uh, which is sort of slightly independent of the stock of debt, and then you have the misallocation of capital. So basically, once you have tied in a lot of investment with a very low, um, with a very low sort of threshold rate of return then all those investments um, become dubious if you you know or doubtful when you raise interest rates. And and then you know all these zombies and so on and so forth go belly up. So I, I think of it really sort of almost, you know, as if there are there are many sort of streams leading to this great torrent of ever lower interest rates. And and that's what we've been sort of Stuck on now, I mean, our friend Jim Grant didn't quite understand it <laughs> you know none of us we didn't you know we all got it wrong. Right. We get these things wrong and we learn while we analyze, and which is sort of why finance is quite or investment is quite interesting because one one learns from one's mistakes, but yeah, we have been on this great, if you want to call it um, bond bull market, and at some stage. Uh, we will get off it. I mean, it cannot continue indefinitely because the lower negative rates are, to my mind, the end of capitalism. It's sort of, they're inimical to capitalism. And in that sense, the longer you stay down that route, the more the wheels (laughs) come off the machine. And I think the wheels have been coming off the machine big time. You know, if you will, my end game to this is that you're going to get some inflation into the system and the inflation will then start to freak the markets out. And at that stage, the central bankers are going to have to switch from their priority of just accommodating financial markets to, to trying to get money under control. And I think that that, I think uh, to my mind, that is the only way this ends. I mean, otherwise, I, I, can't, I just can't see it ending it, it's gone on for you know, it's gone on it's gone on for much longer i mean bill you probably like me you know I, I wrote a report on the credit boom published in 2004 5 which said you know when this ends they'll have run out of bullets yeah <laughs> well you know they didn't they hadn't run out of bullets they had a yeah. whole you know bigger you know they had a whole arsenal <laughs> uh that, that were never considered
1: well you know th- That's an interesting observation, Ed, because I have an unanswerable question, but you just kind of walked into that right there. It's not really a question, but I'd like you to see if you can frame it or make some sense of it. So if we just start with, we got the the South Sea bubble and the tulip mania, they were fairly far apart. And then we managed not to have any world-shaking manias that did a lot of damage, really until 29... And then we managed to not have a big one until uh, Tokyo. I know there's some little ones thrown in between, but the big ones. And now all of a sudden we have three in a row, you know, the, the well, this is maybe our, our, our third, you know, we had the equity bubble, the real estate bubble, and now we have whatever this is. And it, it's like the equity bubble got big enough here that they, there was no way to not go back to the same thing. And now we're on this path where they can't raise rates because they've got this epic edifice of debt and the bubble and and they've managed to trap themselves. I mean, I just can't understand how societies and you know managed to avoid this for so long and now it's just it's like that that's all it is. It's one giant financial bubble.
2: I wouldn't quite agree with you to say that they were so into the bubbles. The the you, know, you had the um you had the tulip mania, and then you had, you know, in 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 the 1690s, this sort of what I call the you know the diving engine mania. Anyhow, it was the first sort of the first proper mania in England in the 18. Well, the 18th century was sort of different in England because you know they banned the formation of joint stock companies, <laughs> so you could. But you still had a sort of periodic financial cycle, and you could see, it, and again, you know, linked to interest rates. So it's curious, you know, you had you could see that the sort of house prices in England, and even construction cycles, were linked to the interest rate cycle. But then in, in the 19th century, you've got a hell of a lot. I mean, you've got really, um, 1825 was definitely the biggest bubble England had ever seen, then 1836 and 1845 and 1856 and 1860, blah, blah, blah. And then a really big boom in the 1880s and early 90s, which ends with the you know Argentine crisis and the and the failure of Bering's Bank. So anyway, that that that's the sort of stuff that you know Walter Badger was writing about in his journalism for the Economist in the 19th century. So 19th century, pretty speculative. But there were limits on speculation, and the limits, I think, were um, you know created by the fact that money was redeemable in in gold. And, and frankly, you know, and 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 in gold. You can only yeah. build so much credit onto a system before someone starts to sort of want to take their their, their mm-hmm. to take their profits in in gold in which case you know these bubbles or or, or whatever you want to call them uh, financial booms come to to an end and and what you get you know go back to my point the the you know the bank of england uh during these w- would often find that it's so to speak its reserve so the the gold bullion relative to the amount of, uh, of p- paper notes it had out there, that its gold, that its reserve was diminishing, and it would hike to bring gold back to, to England. And, it, and so it, what <laughs> now, I mean, in the five years after the financial crisis, the Fed expanded its balance sheet by more than the nominal growth in GDP. Can you believe that? <laughs> <laughs> I think, yeah, yeah, I can, but <laughs> I mean, again, now trillions seem small figures to us, but I think, I think I'm right in saying something, that the large banks, you know, expanded in the decade after Lehman about 15 trillion. I, I'm saying that, I think I've read something like that I say that the only limit, go back to what I say, the only limit on the central bank actions is the stability of the currency. And for a variety of reasons, the initial response to Lehman's bust was not inflationary. Well, it was asset price inflationary, but it was not consumer price inflationary. And uh, we all love asset price inflation, Mm -hmm. so uh, no no one said, you know, it's a bad thing. Well, a few people did, but they were just considered party poopers. And I I, I think now, um, (laughs) and it was partly to do I'm not saying that deflation pressures have completely diminished, because in this highly financialized economy uh, that I was describing, which sort of everyone is really dependent for their for their solvency of their spending of power or on taking financial assets and converting them into cash, it, that means that any crash can quickly become very deflationary. I'm I'm pretty certain of that. But on the other hand, I think that um, you know that great force of disinflation, you know, the sort of China flooding the world with its goods and globalization, it it, it definitely seems to be reversing. Again, think of it, Bill, you know, think of you want another sort of end game for your great speculative manias. That lunatic, Peter Thiel, (laughs) he said, every bubble is a bubble of globalization. And he's sort of right. You know, the South Sea bubble and the Mississippi bubble were sort of globalization bubbles. And then, you know, I told you about the sort of the 1880s mm-hmm. and, or even 1825s. So we've had you know, this yeah. period of sort of massive capital flows of globalisation, and, and one of the consequences of that is that if you bring you know, a whole load of people into the global workforce or the workforce for trading goods, you depress, obviously, the bargaining power of workers in the West. And, and actually, as you depress their bargaining power, that in itself has a rather disinflationary effect and tends to lower interest rates as well so if we have a reversal or collapse of globalization which i think we will do then then i think that you know that that is perhaps in itself is the death now you know perhaps independent of but i don't know because I, as i say you know i mean i could sort of now conceive of a world in which you know the there is a Federal Reserve just buying the last asset on earth, <laughs> in which you know we're all you know it was a living <laughs> Armageddon. Yeah,
0: it feels that way.
2: <laughs> and you know there is actually there's quite a good Tom Lehrer song about you know the nuclear apocalypse, and it goes, you know, uh, and it goes we'll all go together when we go, and it goes he goes, Lloyds of London will be loaded when we go because no one will, no one will be around to pick up on their uh, on their premiums. And I sort of feel that that, you know, what we have now is the sort of world <laughs> in which, you know, the, the Anglo-Saxon economies are down, you know, 20%. <laughs> and actually, if you just look at your stock, if you look at, if you hadn't really opened your, 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 any sort of the letters from your stock break, accounts from the stock break since the beginning of the year, you know, we've all been having a good year, thank you very much. <laughs> so it, it doesn't make, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever.
0: Ed, can I? There's a, there's a bunch of things in there I'd love to. I'd love to kind of explore with, with all three of us. And, and a lot of that comes back to this idea that that rates have to stay at zero. And if we assume that you're right, and I, and I, I believe you are right. I don't think there's any way they can they can uh, they can raise them. What what are the what are the consequences of essentially having zero interest rates for as long as they can get away with it? Let's say because at some point, as you say, inflation is going to come back, and then they're in with a very difficult choice because, given the debt load. The servicing costs, if they raise rates, blow them out of the water very, very quickly. But what does this do to money? What does this do to the, to the value, of the sanctity of money? And does it potentially bring gold back into the equation, do you think?
2: Um, well, I think the situation is slightly more dire uh, than rates having to stay at zero, there is. I don't, have you ever come across this economist called Bernard Connolly? Does, does that mean anything? Yes, Euro so,
0: yeah. Euro, Euro skeptic, yeah, yeah, Yes, so,
2: but Bernard actually is a sort of very sophisticated monetary economist, and his thesis, which I sort of buy into, it, and it goes back. His argument is that once they created the bubble in the, you know, in the, in the um, back in the nineteen in the nineteen nineties. Then, from that moment onwards, when they started propping it up, you know, people would be basically saving too little and taking on too much debt. At which point, Bernard's argument is that interest rates started going on this downward escalator. And uh, once they're on the downward escalator, they have to continue going down. Um, but, but, and so, so that's, so in a way, and, you know, so zero is not, there is no zero lower bound. Sure. Uh, you, uh, right. The thing is that once I mean, one aspect, I mean, I touched on it earlier, but, but we used to think of interest as related to profitability <laughs> or, or, or even as a hurdle rate. <laughs> you know, what, right. what, is the, what is the, you know, what is your, um, you, know, what, you know, what is the discounted cash flow of, you know, what is your hurdle rate? Now, uh, if, 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 at a negative rate, you are actually destroying capital and there's no incentive to say it. So you, you actually get a lower... You get no incentive to save. You have massive incentive to misallocate capital. The way I see it is this. Um, I think my book is going to be called The Price of Time because the, really what interest is is putting a price on time. It's not. People sometimes call it the price of money. It's not the price of money. It's the price yeah. of money over a period of time. Time, Every, yeah. Everything we do... Where well, all our economic actions are intertemporal. they take place over time. We invest and save for some period in the future. So there's this huge coordination that is taking place over time, And I think the interest rate is actually acting if you will, an ideal or free interest rate, is acting as the coordination for all these intertemporal activities. So it's what Jim Grant, again, you know, who always has the sort of best phrase, he calls it, you know, the universal price. And I think if you take away the universal price, the price of time, you then get constantly um malcoordinated economies. So your your savings and your investment and your consumption and all going to be out of whack with each other. You know, everything is going to be in a state of continuous and worsening disequilibrium. And one of the things you'll see, which we have seen over the last decade, is this extraordinary deterioration and collapse of productivity. Uh, so the capitalist economies cease to grow. Uh, they cease to generate productivity growth. Then the next phase would be that their productivity growth will, will then start to collapse. Uh, then through these... F- I'm sorry, I'm sounding a bit depressed, but, you know, this is, you know, the nature of the world. Uh, the, then the, I think the <laughs> next phase, it, it, frankly, is that the government steps in. And again, you're seeing that this year, is that it, as capitalism flails and fails... Then you know you've got the Larry Summerses of this world saying you know the Fed should be printing the money and the government should be spending money on investment blah 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 and you, in a way the COVID nineteen response is sort of accelerating that but it, already mm-hmm. you know I, when I in a sort of draft of this current book I I sort of you know my last chapter was you know called the road to serfdom and it is it's really the these, my thesis uh, was that sort of Hayek was right but he was, you know, mm. 60 years early. And, and actually, the, um, the... What?
1: No, no, uh, I, sorry, that you, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I wanted to actually ask you that. So since you talked about it, at the, the very end of Devil Take the Highmost, you, you, you brought up this very, the subject of Hayek, and you said that um, he believed that from a mixed economy, there would be an inevitable progress to socialism. History has proved Hayek wrong, and you... Concluded by the pendulum swings back and forth between liberty and economic constraint. And so I was going to ask you at some point the question is would you would you be revising that conclusion if you were to write it today?
2: I am much more Hayekian now than I. I mean, probably just as well. I wasn't so hyped <laughs> in the when I read that book, because you know, it would have been a sort of A, it's a bit too academic and recherche, and B, you know, uh, Hayek is he's a bit of a red rag to um you know the keynesians and the behavioral finance people so forth um you know no, I you know obviously he was wrong um, if you look at his his arguments <laughs> um which really if you reread i mean it, it does definitely bear i reread it a couple of years ago definitely worth rereading the road chapter because it's not really about economics right? you know although he's you know this great economist not really about economics more but it but it he, when he describes the sort of, you know, how he, particularly he, he his bugbear is really central bankers aiming at price stability. Um, it, that was what Hayek sort of cut his teeth on in the 1920s. And really what's happened in the last 20 years is we've had a sort of repeat of the 1920s experiment, of, which we now call sort of inflation targeting, but it's the same type of thing. And Hayek said that if you went down that route, and he does touch upon this in The Road to Serfdom, you would create tremendous inequalities. Um, we haven't really mentioned that so far. But a lot of the inequalities, uh, the, both the sort of, if you will, between the classes, but also between the generations, are actually a product of the monetary policy and, you know, I mean, I know that because I, I, you know, to some extent, I'm a sort of beneficiary. So, but, you know, one knows that one, you know, any of us who worked in finance have found it much easier to make money you know, that, than we, we would have done in earlier times or should have done, frankly. And I think that that sort of, if you will, that sort of stokes a grievance. But I think Hayek's also point is that he describes, you know, the, a sort of, if you will, a sort of, and Schumpeter does the same thing, a sort of intellectual elite that wishes to control everything. And we're really back in that position where you've got, if you will, the sort of Ivy League, Oxford and Cambridge educated elite who's sort of occupying both the higher echelons of the universities, the the civil service and the large corporations and finance. And they sort of do wish to, they, they have forces of centralization and their desire to to control it seems to be sort of pretty uh, unquenchable already, and and so um, I I think uh, with low interest rates and the capitalist system falling to pieces, they don't acknowledge that they're responsible for this process. But they you know so they I mean it's what again go back to Jim Grant. He says you know the the Fed is both you know arsonist and firefighter. So you know we've got basically the arsonist who are already standing there, you know, and, and so, you know, the whole, the whole world will be a you know, massive fire engine, you know, fu- fire stations, soon, uh, because, you know, everything will be burnt down. And then, again, it sounds a bit gloomy, but it does seem as if we're heading in that direction.
0: Let me ask you, uh, change the subject a little bit. Um, you know, your, your book is, is, is a masterful chronicle of all these various extraordinary bubbles uh, going from, the, I think, the late 1600s to, to the most recent one. Uh, at the time of the Dr. com bubble, but um, as you look through those two questions, one can you just point out some of the common threads to the people listening, the, the things that you can trace through all of them that, that you might see today as well, and also perhaps highlight which bubble you think is is maybe the biggest object lesson for us today that people should really read up on uh, and, and know more about if they want to try and understand what's happening today.
2: Um, well. I think I said, I'm which I don't know which bubble I like. I mean, I, <laughs> I have been, doing, <laughs> I, I actually, one thing I didn't write about in, in devil Tate that I Most was the um, Mississippi bubble. And I have, I've actually been writing quite a lot about it, but that's a very monetary thing, as yeah. you know, mm-hmm. John law, uh, not just having this, you know, this huge company, but also running the cent- bank, <laughs> conveniently yeah. running the central <laughs> bank <laughs> <laughs> and lowering interest rates and printing the. So and this is this year is the sort of you know two, the 300th anniversary of that. So in fact, actually, if you, I mean, your listeners, you know, I, if I would sort of tout one, one book and one event, you know, I, I, I'd say you, um, you know, the I don't know if you have read it, James Buchan's Life of John Law. Have you, yeah, have you yes. It's a very recent
0: book. Yeah, yeah,
2: it came out two years years ago. I find Law's um, Mississippi bubble really the most instructive for the current day because you've got all the ingredients. You've got your bubble of globalisation, your company that, well, frankly, the Mississippi bubble... um, you know what it incorporated all the French trading overseas trading companies, the Company of China, the East India Company, the Africa Company, and then the Louisiana Company that laid claim to roughly sort of half the current landmass of the United States. And then it, you know, it was a huge domestic company. You know, it had you know a lot of domestic. It had the tobacco monopoly and the monopoly on the collection of, of, of taxes, and then took over, for good measure, the French national debt, which was roughly the size of French GDP. And in fact, actually, so James Buchan, he wrote, 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 wrote a letter to the FT about three years ago, which he said that, that compared to the Mississippi company, the company des Andes, as it was officially called, uh, the Apple was a rag and bone shop. <laughs> so, <laughs> actually, now, now that Apple's got a two trillion, yes. value, things have changed. It might have, but I, I, I still probably a Mississippi company in itself was, yeah, I, I did. I, mean, I, say I must, it, I think it's, it's market capitalization must have been, I've never seen it written up, but it must have been something between one and a half and two times French GDP. So that, that's, 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 that's so well, Apple would have some way to get that. It's
1: got 20, it's got, it's got trillion. 20 X to go to catch yeah. up. But you know, um, <laughs> it's, so it's, it's a buy. <laughs> Apple is a buy. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. So based
2: Apple, on the, based on the Mississippi company. Yeah. Yeah. benchmark. I think, I think that the, um, you know what's interesting then is, as I say, John Law has this company, but he also uh, becomes you know, starts a, a bank, which then becomes the French central bank, and he, he demonetizes gold, so you know, you have your first fiat currency. He pushes down the, the uh, French interest rates from about you six know, percent to two percent, and, and, and therefore uh, the Mississippi Company trading on a P.E. of 50 times is sort of fair relative to the interest rate. That's what law thought, and that was his sort of reasoning. And then things fall out of control pretty quickly, partly because French people try and get their money out of the country, and so the the French currency starts collapsing relative to sterling, because sterling is still convertible into gold, and that forces law to become rather tyrannical. So there you are, you, you have your little road to serfdom uh, in a very short period of time so Law turns from being this sort of luge gambler into a sort of petty Stalin really in in a sort of short period of time and then you get this inflation and it's really the the surge of inflation that brings the Mississippi bubble to an end because Law has to decide between embracing the inflation or a deflationary course and he actually chooses a deflationary course which blows up the bubble. So I, I have to say I can't. You know, I, mean, I have, admittedly I've been writing about it more recently, but I, I can't find I can't find anything more instructive than the Mississippi bubble for, for the current world we're
1: living in. That's both great. So if and John had, at the same if, time. if John Law had known about QE, he could have <laughs> kept the thing going.
2: <laughs> but he, you know, that's the funny thing is that. The, he tried the, it.
1: He t- I know he tried it, but he, <laughs> the rest of the world still was on the gold standard, unlike now when they're all on the printing
2: press standard. Yeah, but Bill, so, the comedy, so there's a rather charming old boy our Irishman who who written a biography of law, I mean, it's sort of academic. He's called Antoine Murphy, and he wrote a paper... And, and this is quite common, <laughs> they the, the academics they say the marvelous thing about Lawrence is he anticipated modern central banking. <laughs> and you say, oh. he did. notwithstanding <laughs> the bloody failure of his scheme. I mean, and they, <laughs> the, the academics do not get They think, they, they see him as, you know, you know so of <laughs> he's perfectly nice. He says, you know, what Draghi, I mean, he wrote this five years ago, but what Draghi and Bernanke and blah, 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 Carney, we're all doing was just what John Law advised. Well, I mean, you know, more fool them, you might think. But then, on the other <laughs> hand, you could give them credit. They've got kept, as you know, Law, um, you know, kept his show on the road for, you know, 18 months, and these guys have pushed things a lot further. But then you could, you might be saying, Bill, and, you know, here might be your, again, one of your end game indicators is the run to gold. I mean, is, yeah. is the gold, you know, is, look, and people like you and I, I take it, we've been sitting on a little pile of gold. <laughs> and, and it's fine because, you know, we were buying it in 99 and it wasn't very expensive. But then, you know, there were times when, and, you know, there was, it is interesting in the last in the last cycle, you probably noticed it, and I, I used to sort of Josh, Jim Grant about this, is that basically gold was following capital flows. It was sort of rise, did you notice that? In it sort of, really up until the the gold bubble burst in 2013. If capital flows were going into emerging markets and the emerging markets were uh, central banks were buying... So, in fact, actually, it was almost indistinguishable whether you were buying gold or emerging market equity. So, if you will, the bull and the bear both looked smart. Whereas now, I think, I'm thinking that people might be more coming round to fact <laughs> that you want to be sitting on something a bit more solid when this show comes, comes to an end.
1: The functional equivalent of the French citizens trying to get a a little money into gold as yeah. opposed to just... Uh, exactly, yeah. exactly,
2: yeah. I mean, the only caveat I'd say is, as you're probably aware Jordan Law banned <laughs> the, the ownership <laughs> of gold. So, I mean, it's not inconceivable. I mean, and it's been... Everyone, you know, it's been so many times that gold has been... I'm not how similar, but quite a few times that just when you wanted to own gold, you, um, you would find that the authorities would make it. it. It may be, you know, it may be just simply too good to be true that they... I mean, you could you could easily see you know freezing of ETF accounts or that sort of thing at some stage. Mm-hmm. But yeah, t- I I wonder whether that yeah you know, that that gold surge you know if if I mean I've given up trying to you know I'm uh, I'm not you know I've given up trying to call the end of this current cycle you know because <laughs> you know I, welcome I, to I, the club. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just very glad that I'm not you know. That I'm not shorting anymore because it's you know, it would have been you know, it would be too stressful. Um, <laughs> but I, I, and also, you know, one does get these things, you know, one, as I say, we've been living through unprecedented times, so we didn't know how far things could go. So, I mean, you know, mm-hmm. frankly, mm-hmm. um, you know, one, yeah, you know, one could be forgiven for for making mistakes, I think. but there we are.
0: Yeah, but when you look at uh, obviously, there's a huge psychological component to all of these bubbles, um, and when you look back at the ones you chronicled and you look at today, perhaps you could just kind of tease out some of the threads that you find that run generally through all of these. And, you know, it, it, when you read the chapter on 1929, which I went back and reread a couple of days ago, um, it, it's really stark, some of your passages that, that just ring so many bells with investor psychology and investor behavior today. So I'd be fascinated to hear through the course of time if there are any obvious signs that ring true with all of these bubbles.
2: Well... I won't bang on about the monetary side of it any longer. But what I'd say is, well, in fact, I'll go back to the comment I made earlier, which was that the bubble is, there are two aspects to it. There is, if you will, the monetary side, and then there is just simply the sort of pyramid scheme. Now, what gets a pyramid scheme going is communication. So I, I think what you see is a lot of the bubbles seem to coincide with advances in communication, and, and that means, really, if you think back to your pyramid scheme, is that if I mm-hmm. can, um, if you know, you know, um, bubbles are contagious events. <laughs> so uh, if you can infect, if they have an R number greater than one, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that, that it helps to have people communicate. And if you communicate, you know, back in the 1690s or 1720s, they were doing it through sort of periodicals and and. You know, actually, people like Defoe were writing their own... It was a sort of plethora of, of little publications. It was sort of almost a bit like blogs, you know, if you've yeah, um, And then you, know, you go back, you know, go into the uh, 19th century, and then you, you, know, you get railways and, and telegrams and so on. And then you go into the 1920s, you get the telephone, uh, radio... And and then you know now of course you know I mean the internet is absolutely the sort of godsend for you know for generating for communicating perspective for so you I mean again you know during the um, you know the lockdown you have all these sort of you know, all these people have you know, given a huge amount of money by the government, sit at home doing nothing. But they weren't doing nothing, they were all on their Robin Hood <laughs> accounts buying Tesla stocks <laughs> And then I, I don't know where, I mean, you know, I'm now getting too old to know where they were communicating their enthusiasm for uh, Tesla, but they must have found, they, you know, I don't know if they're doing it on Twitter, but or whether they got some sort of re, more recherche bulletin board. But I take yeah, it they I are. Well, where are they and so can you tell Reddit. me what's... I
0: think Reddit Reddit is the main culprit from what I can say,
2: oh, okay so yeah. So, um, so yeah so so yeah so that and then of course you know, well and then you then you had that you know the crypto stuff um, a few years and even crypto has been coming back a bit I mean I don't know where Bitcoin is at this moment but it's sort of about
1: 12 grand <laughs> I think around 12 thousand my
2: I, head. I, I wrote a bit piece you know back in some sort of nailing uh, <laughs> Bitcoin, nailing Bitcoin in December 2017, which I said you know was going the way of the tulip uh, bubbles, um, and I wrote you know, and then I I cited that the, the, the some data on the on the on the, the Guda, uh, tulip bubbles which went I don't know let's say from 30 guilders to 0.1 guilder, and I said I couldn't see why Bitcoin shouldn't follow the same trajectory. Whereupon um, Paul Singer wrote to me saying, why should it retain one? Point zero of a, of a <laughs> gilder. Well, so actually, the point is that actually the fact that the the, the Bitcoin is is it, it, your Bitcoin is a purely again that's another thing about bubbles where they you know, something which the medium also speculates in itself. You know, so in a way, uh, you know, cryptocurrency is sort of that is communicate the, the the euphoria is communicated digitally, and then the object of itself is digital and you know, in in effect to my mind, you know, a complete nullity. You know, um, but having value as long as people I mean, you could say, I mean, obviously, you know, uh Keynes would say that of gold, but <laughs> uh, we won't get into that. But but I mean I say to some extent, I mean it's, it's true that all value is in the eye of the the perceiver, but in, in the you know, case like Bitcoin or even, you know, the, the tulip bulbs of the of the sixteen thirties. They're sort of purely speculative bubbles, if you will, um, and I think I think Bitcoin is the purest bubble in history. I, I I don't I can't think of a of a more pure bubble than because you know something that is that that I mean Frank I think the o- yeah <laughs> the only thing
1: that would be purer would be a chain letter and 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 they never got big enough you know they 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 would fizzle out. That, that that's kind of what gave me my focus on the psychological component because i've seen a couple of chain letter periods in my life they never they never get big enough but it's pure psychology that ends them right I mean they go longer than they should and then they just stop so to me that's the purest form of 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 bubble mentality because there's no there there it's pure not even Ponzi it's
2: well, it just is, but it is, it is, I mean, I think Ponzi, I mean, that it is Ponzi, I, and, uh, and again, I, I think it is. Yeah,
1: but there's not like there's one, prom- well, maybe there is a promoter behind it, so maybe it is just a Ponzi scheme.
2: Yes, I mean, yeah, it doesn't matter. I mean, Ponzi scheme is just a name given to to some, I mean, we call it a financial scam, but it, I mean, it's just an asset that, it, that is rising in value or paying, in the case of Ponzi, paying out interest rates because more money is coming in and then blows apart when the money ceases to, to come in.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I I have a slightly different view on Bitcoin, but we, we can we can go into that another time. But I think you and I can can talk about that on the yeah. podcast. But 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 I'm I'm still fascinated. Um, it to, to this this the psychological component of this. Um, you know where we are now, as I said, uh, when reading about 1929 again, just the the idea of cognitive dissonance, the idea that the the, the, the the, the stronger things were, the more disinclined people were to believe them. The fact that, you know, the market had a couple of really nasty falls, but we got we got the the, the idea that, well, this is my last chance to get in. When you look at where we are today with psychology, and obviously these last few days in the markets have been very shaky, where, where do you think we are in that kind of, on, on that glide path? Are we in the, there's still a chance to get in and the, and the markets feel they might take off again? Or do you think we're reaching that point where there's real danger that we might psychologically let this thing decompose?
2: Um I mean it's difficult for me to to gauge the you know the psychology the the um, from where I'm sitting. Remember, I, I, it's not it's not something I've been been thinking deeply about. I think what the way I see it is that there was huge support, sort of double. Barreled support for the markets um as the sort of coronavirus outbreak sort of gathered steam and and one is um of you know what we've talked about the central banks uh, intervening opening up their balance sheets civil, so and the other is the the government's you know spending you know, huge government deficits and um those government deficits in, in the near term, I'm sorry, I'm being a bit economic rather than psychological, but those government deficits in the near term will, you know, the corollary of that is to boost profits. You know, the, the I mean, for what it's worth, you know, I had my hair cut today by a sort of woman next to a village, and um, she, she'd been given, you know, uh, some money by the government because she rented uh, out her cottage and they'd sent her 10,000 pounds. And she said, well, Actually I've rented out my Goggia. So this is a my best year ever. So her little business is more profitable, but it's sort of illusory profit. So yeah. what I what I uh wait, wait it's a profit, it's profit coming from the government deficit. So what I suspect is that some combat that that the support for this market could and I haven't been following things that closely, but I think it should be quite Sensitive to the monetary or fiscal support, and then to go back to my point that I think it would be sensitive to, to, to any sort of anything that that made the central banks feel that they couldn't, you know, that, that fear a, a return of inflation. So I, I would have thought. I mean, look, look how flighty, you know. This isn't well. This is the way. It's sort of extraordinary, isn't it? Um, I, I I wrote a piece in in March saying that the response to coronavirus. Struck me as a sort of uh, as a uh, a risk bubble, a sort of inverted bubble, in that people were they were overestimating the virulence of this disease and uh, and its and, and and the risk posed, but and it and yet there was this tremendous fear that sort of surged round the um well really the whole I mean half the world was locked down, yeah. extraordinary, and. Um, we know with at an enormous cost. There's no, no one deny it. Um, and yet, at the same time, we are talking about, you know, on the one hand, you have, you know, the world, you know, locked down in fear, and at the same time, we have the financial markets in a state of weird euphoria. Euphoria. I say so it seems almost uh, schizophrenic or bipolar, doesn't it? That you could hold those two positions. In in your head. I mean, I can't. (laughs) Unless I'm, perhaps I'm the last sane person on earth. Or perhaps the three of us are the last sane people because I'm not prepared to be both, you know, sort of panic. I'm, I'm, funny enough, I'm actually, I'm slightly bipolar. I'm sort of more, I'm less worried. (laughs) Less worried about (laughs) the coronavirus than I I am about the state of the financial markets and the economies, which really does, you know, um, you know, Keep me awake at night. So, but I, so I, yeah, I, 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 could see the nature of you know if you think of this, you know, bi, if I would go run with our bipolar for a while, then you can see that you can flip very quickly. Huh? Having said that, I thought <laughs> thought the world would flip out of its panic with the coronavirus when they saw that it was tailing off. And it was just going to look like a very bad flu season. And, and that, that hasn't happened. So, you know, again, the longer we are in this business of analyzing markets and analyzing risks, you know, we, we, you know the, the, the refreshing thing about it is, that is, uh, you know, one is wrong. <laughs> you know, every, every year you, you age with your errors, which is, which is fine. It just I, I would never have, if you told me at the beginning of the year that this was going to happen, I'd say I just I can't believe it.
1: Uh, well, I think I don't think anyone would have believed someone who said that. But what it seems to demonstrate is the power of QE um, here, and and what the other central banks have done when married with the illiquid market structure that may have been created through the passive investment community market share. The combination of those two now has created. A, a dynamic such that we can have this economic disaster with so many people' lives ruined financially, and business is the same. And then the stock market acts like we're in the midst of the greatest prosperity in the, the world's ever seen. Um, and and that's just the the warpage caused by these policies.
2: It seems yes, to me. and I I think I mean this is what I, you know. I I do think that. It's very irresponsible because I mean again, as I mean people like us have been complaining about the sort of short termism of policy making establishment particularly monetary policy making, but it's sort of true everywhere they'll sacrifice anything so you know for an easy week or month or or six months or a year. I suppose one of the things i've and we haven't touched really upon it, but I mentioned the sort of inequality and the sort of social tensions that are that are uh, building up and it seems to me that um you know that we're pushing things too far on that front and, and, and I actually well i mean you know one doesn't want to sort of belabor these you know comparisons between the sort of 1920s and and or 1930s but you, know, you can see america and portland you know you know these thugs you know in, in their sort of you know Armed paramilitaries and so forth. It, it just. I don't know, Bill. You were there, I think, at, at Jim's conference two or three years ago, when there was some Swiss guy uh, speaking. I think it was called Tony Dead and all whatever. Yeah, yeah. He, I think he alluded to a, a short story by Thomas Mann, where he said that, written in the 1920s about the German hyperinflation, that, our man was suggesting that once that the money was the sort of, if you will, the, the uh, yardstick of, of values, not merely just uh, economic values, and that if that yardstick was sort of broken, that the sort of cohesive values of society would start to, to fall apart. Now, we associate that sort of social collapse with the hyperinflation. You know? So we sort of, you know, mm-hmm. you see a picture mm-hmm. of someone sort of with a wheelbarrow uh, you know, mm-hmm. full of, you know, of um, Deutschmark. But I, I think, or Reichsmarks, they would have been. The, the, but I think, I'm wondering whether actually this sort of endless monetary manipulation isn't as sort of corroding to the values that held society together as the more overt German hyperinflation. I mean, it is weird, as you know, that, you know, there are so many things you cannot discuss nowadays and, and, quite, and things that seem quite sort of, you know, palpably straightforward, you know, a few years ago, like, say, for instance, the gender of a woman would become a, you know, an impossible thing to... So it seems to me that we're back. You know, there's something, there's something of this air of the destabilisation of, so, of society's values. And in a way, you know, frankly... That is a much more important story than you know whether Tesla is worth you know yeah. $7 billion dollars because in the end when society breaks down you know it, it's um, all wealth is destroyed you know you sort of have to start all over again and you know, it seems that's what worries me about this sort of debt supercycle and asset price supercycle is that it's sort yeah. of, it, it, it the denouement, well, what Claudio Borio refers to a global seismic rupture. I think you know, I, yeah, one does feel one's heading in that direction, and, and so who cares? You know what they ask? You know what they do to the stock? I mean, it only. I, frankly, I think it only matters if you're cashing, like me, if you're cashing out the money to build yourself a swimming pool. <laughs> Otherwise, that it's just a monetary value. Yeah. You're, you know, it, 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 it doesn't signify, at least doesn't signify that much to me.
1: Well, you know what? That's a brilliant insight. I had never considered this sort of this societal breakdown with what you see in hype. I mean, I know what happens in hyperinflationary environments, but I hadn't considered the connect, you know, this the this the, the, the sort of similarities between what we're seeing in certain places in America and that outcome—it's—it's it's a pretty interesting thing to think about.
2: Yeah, have you, have you ever come? To, I mean, the um, the nice fellow called Michael Pansner, Did you ever read? It? He's written a couple of sort of. Uh, yeah, future... I've read something that he's. He written. read one book called "When Giants Fall." He did. He read a very sort of uncanny book about you know sort of full sort of uncanny prophetic insights in about two thousand five. He sort of plays on that, you know, on the the line of financial collapse and societal collapse but I thought that the Tony Dedans or Deedon whatever his name I thought his his comments sort of lit a, lit a little light bulb in my head.
0: He has a habit of doing that you know it's interesting when, when I think about this and, and I've thought like you and I've thought about this stuff a lot and the problem with it I see is that at this moment it feels as though a lot of the things that are being done are being done very deliberately to try and stave off that, stave off that precise outcome that you've just described there Unfortunately, the part of the cycle we're now in is that those actions actually now accelerate that outcome. And that that feels to me like perhaps the end game is that we're in this position where we're doing everything to stop it. And, and at the same time, every one of those actions brings that, that denouement that you described closer to hand, which which I, I must admit does worry me a great deal.
2: Yeah. I mean, I mean, obviously am serving you know, stuff more closely in England, but you know, you, you, with the lockdown, you know, clearly it's, you know, the middle classes and people employed by the state have, on the whole, sort of seem to have done reasonably well. And, you know, particularly, you know, if you had a little business, you got sort of a £200,000 check sent by the government. But, you know, frankly, you know, if you were working class, you you know, you, you know, your children weren't educated, you know, you hadn't, a pretty miserable time, and then, and then you know, if you're younger, younger generation, you've lost your jobs. Uh, they've you know managed to prevent the house price, house prices collapsing, so houses remain more unaffordable. There's no you know, blood. I mean, I have certain sympathy you know all my nephews and nieces all sort of perfectly nice middle-class children uh who are not now say i mean they're in their 20s or early 30s but they're all incredibly left-wing and and you know yeah. much more left-wing than i would have thought than say i was <laughs> when i was thought mm. sort of te- I mean, and they think i'm sort of absurdly right-wing but actually the thing is that they you know when we were young you know you had a chance of sort of Getting a foot on the housing ladder of of saving some money so they don't, they really don't have any of that no. they, are, they don't have any of that possibility and at the same time you know you, you've got this mass plethora of you know oh, too many university educated people and and you know and with you know frankly no not pro- proper jobs for them so that would be you know it's a very toxic uh, situation I mean that, that that's that's sort of revolutionary tinder. You know? yeah
0: yeah absolutely right. I mean, I read this week that fifty two percent of millennials live with their parents now, which when you think the kind of leading edge of the millennials' are early 30s now is is a terrifying statistic.
2: Ah, oh, oh, it doesn't surprise me yeah, and again i I'm afraid I just put that down i, mean, I have read, I've got two chapters on my book in, in the book on interest rates about inequality, one being the one percent and the other being the 99 percent. And yeah. showing mm-hmm. how it affects you, you know, affects each group differently. So it's very divisive, um, and people have not, by and large, twigged onto it, have they? And and in, I mean, to in a way, I, I sort of, I mean, I'm going off site at a tangent. But when you see all these corporations, or even you know, Wall Street going woke you think, well, actually, why are they going woke? They're sort of going woke in order to sort of conceal their own <laughs> heinousness. <laughs> it's, just, you know, it's just very cheap sort of virtue flagging now to sort of put yourself on the sides of the revolutionaries. But in fact, it, it's not, Yeah, you know, it's not, I don't think that, that, that can hold. The
0: enemy of my enemy is my friend
2: something like that. Right, that's, that's
0: just a, well Ed uh, listen, I, I can't thank you enough for for taking all this time to talk with us. Uh, I, I feel as though that uh, the the events of the next my couple of years is going to give you all the material you could ever want for a third book after this <laughs> once you finish your interest rate book.
2: Yeah uh, well no I, I you know funny enough I'm actually when I finish the interest rate book it's taken me five years and I'm quite I'm quite looking forward to putting it to bed. Um and then yeah I think I'll I'll um I'll take a walk. <laughs> I can take, when, when do you think,
1: when do you think it's going to be published, well, Ed?
2: I don't know. I'm a, I mean, I, I just got to get it finished. This year. perhaps by the summer of next year or something like that. I don't know. Or, or later next year. We'll see.
1: Fantastic. Well, well maybe your timing, will, maybe your timing will be perfect yeah. to catch the end of the bond bull market that's gone on for the last 40 years.
2: <laughs> it's very, well, you know, that, that, you probably know, I mean, that's, a, it's, it's, I didn't, it's not the longest bond bull market in history, it's just the most extreme bond bull market in history. But the, the, <laughs> the, 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 there's a line, you know, there's a line in Homer and Scylla that says, interest rates in the 20th century went higher than ever before and lower. So I have to <laughs> say, you know, I think interest rates are going to come, I, I'm I didn't know you know I'm going to get run over by a bus, but I I, I do think I'm going to live to see double digit double digit ten year treasury. So we'll we'll see that. I, I'm predicting. Well, there's, there's, I'm predicting there's a, a call, about, <laughs> I'm predicting a double digit U.S. Treasury rate in what I say within within a decade before the 20, before this decade is out. I'm going to see a double digit Treasury. rate. Well,
1: we'll we'll, ha- we'll have to get back. We'll have to huddle back up once we get down wrong. on that path and and see how it starts to play out huh
2: well we'll see i mean of course the, the, <laughs> i mean i you know, when i was at gma we used to short jgb so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah no
1: one's made money on that trade yet but the, one of these days they will, will, the, will the, the, wid- the
2: widow the widow maker the yeah try. exactly uh, exactly uh, and, and before,
0: before we wrap up um let the people at home know how they can keep in touch with your book updates or are you on social media websites that kind of thing where people can follow you
2: no I mean I, I write for uh, Reuters breaking views when I, I'm, I'm not writing there at the moment but um, I, you know, when I'm not working on the book I, I'll, I'll be writing there and um,
0: the odd letters of the times perhaps
2: <laughs> I did sort I, I just sort of actually decided I'm not going to speak to anyone on social media because I'm wondering that <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering well, the, I, think, I, I, was think, wonder, I was wondering if the world divided into those who were on social media and those who weren't and that our brains were starting to form in slightly different ways
0: <laughs> well, I, I think now you've now you've successfully alienated the Bitcoin crowd it's probably best you do stay on social media I think that's <laughs> <laughs> quite
2: the battle thanks
0: so much Ed for your time it's okay. been a real pleasure talking nice to you nice to speak to
2: you both. bye Graham bye thanks Bye-bye. again Eddie good bye. to see you bye oh, so much. that was fun, fun.
0: So much that fun. was fun. Yeah, you know, it's, it's it's it's. I was conscious of, of Ed's time, but but I figured you and I could kick this around for a bit because you, you know when I hear a call like that, you know, ten-year treasury rates within a decade, my ears prick up because there is literally no way that can happen without an entire reset of the financial system,
1: right? That cannot so, happen. Oh, <clears throat> oh yeah, I mean, it, let's put it this way: that kind of an outcome will only happen after the the, end game. the printing press is taken yeah. away from the yeah. central banks because of fx fixed income or some other reason um and then rates would have but you know but then you've got to figure out you know what kind of debt defaults i mean well, i mean that's, every that's, fiat that's, that, currency in the world is gone at
0: 10 percent of the us treasury right with the debts everywhere they're
1: gone gold is ten thousand well you know s- speaking of fiat currencies and gold it's funny you know i've spent a ton of time reading all these different books on manias and things like that. And I, uh, you know, I never had, I never really thought about the saving grace of the, 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 the rigidity, if you will, of the, the self-balancing nature of the gold standard and its various forms helped preclude bubbles. I mean, as he Perfect. said, there was, a, there, there, was a, there were a handful of, you know, manias, but not the big size bubbles we've talked about. And and the, the and, and obviously the gold standards what finally upended John Law, which I thought which I'd never thought of as the perfect analogy, but of course it is. Yeah. Um. So that was a really interesting thought. I mean, not that it's actionable, but it, it's it. I always feel better if I can at least understand how things sort out. It was sort of like when we learned about the size of passive investing because yeah. of my green. Um, it was depressing and liberating at the same time. Right, so exactly understanding right. what you're up against yep. at least allows you to figure out some sort of a sane game plan perhaps. Well, you and, know? I,
0: and I think it, it helps you understand what to look for because uh, you know one thing about the end game, and you know we're we're certainly no nearer to figuring out an absolute end game, but we're we're running through some fascinating scenarios here. but I think the one thing that is common to any and all of them is, enormous turbulence. There cannot be a a smooth end game to this, right? There cannot be a transition from this period to whatever comes next without an enormous amount of upheaval. And so understanding that gold, for example, is something you need to watch for signs of that stress appearing um, is important. So understanding the role of passive and understanding if the flows start to shift in passive, that is something that could lead to great turbulence. And you know, one of the things that we want to talk about obviously is volatility and and that's something that that we're going to talk about hopefully in our next episode of, of the end game because i think it's it, it kind of wraps everything up because it, it, at that transition as i said volatility is the one thing you can count on
1: well and the other the other another takeaway which, which i was sort of aware of but I hadn't quite thought about it like this is that um you know if if ed's observation is that you need some bit of tightening to get the preconditions for a mania to end, then given the fact that this one has the, the 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 market sort of kind of skinnied down from a supply standpoint, thanks to passive and then their impact coming in, and we've got QE guns blazing, and we've got all these Robin Hooders and new people coming in, you know, how high might things have to go to end this mania, although it could be happening today for all we know, but it's kind of a scary thought. Uh, now, maybe maybe as he suggested, we don't if it gets crazy enough, we don't have to get to tightening. We just need to get to a little less cowbell. But to use James Aiken's favorite yeah. expression. Um, but but then again, you know, the, the, the problem with that is if we get a little less cowbell and the market starts to tank, they just come back with more. I mean, so in the end, they have to be discredited for this to ever end because, that that's exactly what they do, right? If we the market broke ten percent, you know, in a short period of time, they, they'd be coming back with more. They'd, they'd they'd find some new stuff to do. Yeah,
0: it's, it's true. But the but the one thing I found when reading um, when reading uh, Devil Take the Highmost again, and, and uh, I've, I've I've read for the fourth time this summer, um, Lords of Finance. I think it's just such a, a hugely instructive, almost it's almost an instruction manual for what's happening now. And the one thing that struck me firstly in Lords of Finance and second when reading uh, Devil Take the Homest again this week is that none of those bubbles was just left to deflate they threw everything at it and and yes they had different they had different measures they had different tools available at the time um, but they threw everything at all of them to try and stop them happening and ultimately, none of it worked when the time no. comes. And, that, and I, that, I think, is why this psychological component is so important right. to understand. Right. Because there comes a point in time, and, and Ed writes it uh, in the book, and it just talks about people get to a point where, where the fear of losses overwhelms the hope of making profits. And at that point, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter no. what you promise to do. If you are more afraid of losing what you have than of making more, the Fed can say yeah. free money for everybody, and you're just not going to take the risk.
1: Yeah, that's that's my pet exhaustion. Yeah, exactly Concept right. of, but um, you know, I'd always thought exhaustion. I, I always thought it was purely exhaustion. It's clear that there's some level of tightening that's been involved in 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 these prior ones, and then the exhaustion was what tipped it over. The question is now with um, with almost no tightening on the table how wacky does it have to be to get
2: to exhaustion well that's that why was... i think
0: volatility is so important because the more yeah.
1: volatile we get up here
0: the more scary it is for people the more afraid they get um and and you, and and you know if you're not a professional stomaching the kind of churn you see at these volatile points is a very difficult thing to do but
1: but on on the other hand part of what made the late 20s the late 20s was every scary dip came to be bought so in and by the time we finally got to the big one, people weren't afraid anymore. It's like now, right? They've learned every dip is, is to be bought. Yes. So you getting away with that a number of times is is almost a prerequisite for getting something set up that's gonna be extremely yeah. devastating. I mean, we talk about these things rather glibly, but the consequences of of that outcome would be horrendous. Yes.
0: As, as i pointed out on a societal basis that that's the thing yes. that,
1: that troubles me the most i mean and i, and I like well it. And, and and as he pointed out the, the 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 i mean we all know the fabric is eroding but i'd never looked at it through that prism of monetary debasement you know you i would have always thought it would have to go further to get those societal impacts but quite frankly i mean once i start thinking about it that way it's, it's 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 pretty clear why some of this stuff is happening yeah, yeah I think you so know too
0: well um listen uh, i guess all that remains is is to uh, plug eds books which which he didn't do but uh, if you haven't read devil tech the High Most, then i i can't recommend it strongly enough it's a fantastic chronicle of of bubbles and manias and you and you'll you'll everyone you'll read if you keep a highlighter pen with you as i do you'll find more yellow words on the page than black by the time you
1: finished it and what i would say is i often get asked by people you know, about investing. And the first book I make everyone read or I suggest they read first is that book. Yeah. And then another book on psychology, David Dremond's first book on psychology in the stock market. Because everybody talks about the math and all the you know, all this stuff, but they never talk about the psychological factor. And the longer you're around in this business, the more you see that yes, the facts all matter, but psychology matters a lot and it's it's very difficult to quantify. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Uh, If you're still listening and you're uh, a Bitcoin bull, uh, I can only apologize for some of the things you've heard today. I'm sure that you've been gnashing your teeth, but rest assured, uh, Bill and I are both in agreement that at some point Bitcoin is going to play into the endgame and we will explore that uh, once we find the right way to do it. We'll get someone properly bullish and and perhaps someone properly bearish. So we will take care of that. In the meantime... do email us or find us on twitter if you want to ask us questions uh, suggest guests etc cetera, etc cetera, you'll find uh, bill at fleck cap right at fleck cap, at fleck yep. cap and you'll find me at ttmygh thank you so much for listening and we will see you next time <laughs>